0: Hi, and welcome back to Police Stories Podcast. This is episode 33, a series of short stories, mostly short, about uh, my 28 year career in the UK police force. So, last week, uh, lots of downloads from the last couple of episodes. I thought it might be quite interesting to people. Shots fired is something that perhaps in the US certainly is not that rare, but in the UK, it's still quite a big deal. Hopefully you found that interesting. So this week we're going to talk about a little bit of the aftermath of that, um, although we're we're almost ready to move on and then on to another couple of jobs. Um so immediately after that, I think I said that I had some time off where I went to, you know, like a willf- welfare property that the, the force had at the time and just had a little bit of time off to make sure I was okay. My firearms permit, which is like your license to carry a firearm, issued you know, through the police. Uh, That wasn't taken off me. Uh, Generally, it is if there's a concern or if something major has happened. But at the time, they said, well, as far as we're concerned, we don't think you've done anything wrong. So we're not going to take it off you. Um, Although I did actually voluntarily hand it in and say, realistically, I'm not going to carry for a little bit of time anyway. So so have it back for now. Um, Directly afterwards, um, the force has to refer itself to what's called the IOPC. Um, or I think they're the IOPCC now, but basically the um, independent police complaints. And they look at every police shooting in the UK, um, like I say, thankfully a fairly rare occurrence. Um, but, you know, they just, it's a way of really the force, you know, keeping itself right and making sure that everything that should have been done was and that the procedures were correct. Um and a chance for, you know, the complaints to make sure there's sort of nothing to answer can be a worrying time for cops. You know, as I say a lot of people would never, ever consider being armed for just that reason. They just don't want to go through the sort of the nightmare that it can be. But in my scenario, um it was relatively straightforward. And in fact, I was picked up by a detective superintendent It's quite a high rank in the UK police force. And he worked for the IOPC. Really nice guy you know, no sort of prejudgments, he wasn't funny with me, he picked me up in his private car and we went off for a drive basically and drove back to the scene where my shooting had been and uh, he said, you know, I've read the report, I've read your statement, I'm pretty happy what's happened, you know, don't forget there was another sort of four police witnesses there so there was a quite a clear picture and the helicopter up as well so a really good picture of what had happened at the shooting and, um, they turned the uh, the electric off to the train line again and basically we went down and, and had a walk um, on the train line and just, you know, I talked him through where I'd stood and what I'd said and what happened and what have you. Um, it took a few more weeks but ultimately the report came back as uh, IOPC were also uh, happy with the shooting, you know, there was no issues from their point of view. Um, so I was obviously the opportunity to go back to work, which I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, sort of crack on and, and move on really, didn't want to dwell on anything too much. Um but bearing in mind that, you know, in the force at that time, uh this was so rare that you know it wasn't necessarily laid out kind of what to do with someone after a shooting. And uh so they kind of asked me, What what do you want to do? You know, if you're coming back to ARV's armed response vehicles, what what do you want to do? And I suggested a good few screen shoots. Now, these are something that are used to test um, judgment. You know, it's not about speed of quick draw, McGraw, you know, you're not a cowboy. It's about decision making and putting yourself under pressure, uh, a sort of shoot or no shoot. You know, it's it's basically a a video that plays, you know, on a screen in front of you. You have a weapon um, that might fire a laser or possibly paint rounds. Generally, I think a laser. And then you see a series of different scenarios played in front of you um so for example it might be you know a burglar backing out of a house carrying this is shows you how old he is a video recorder or something that he's stolen from within the house he backs out from the house and you know you have to react to him and likewise he then does something and there's you know different endings as well you know they could play it several times and different things happen one time you know he just drops the video and puts his hands up and does what he's told the next time he drops a video and very quickly in a sort of gun-like fashion draws a remote control and points it at you. You know, and this is the sort of thing that the screen shoots do. They test lots of different scenarios. And really for me it was to make sure that I didn't immediately shoot everyone and likewise that when it was clearly necessary, when the person had a gun and was pointed at me, I did take that shot. You know, it wasn't that I'd um been been affected too badly by, you know, the sort of real thing. I mean, it's a really valuable tool. And to be honest with you, I think jurors should go through it in court cases because it's very easy to sit there and hear, you know, um, a defence or a prosecution tell you about these things and explain about split-second decisions and it's dark and you run, so you now you're puffing and panting and all that. Um, but the reality is if you put a jury through some screen shoots so that they could test their ability of making snap decisions, you know, uh, in all, in those very very difficult scenarios it might uh, you know open their eyes a little bit to, to what you know they're actually looking at you for but yeah a really good thing so the other thing I did was just loads and loads of firearms drills not just sort of taking the weapon apart and cleaning it and all that thing, kind of thing it was much more about repeated stressful shoots in terms of mag changes and stoppages on your weapon and uh all these sorts of things you know lots of tests of of my abilities really because i just wanted to make sure that you know i was still up to it you know last thing i wanted to do was go back and be standing beside a colleague if i just didn't think i could do my job anymore so needless to say i got a clean bill of health after that and i was back to work um so that was good you know and to be honest with you I pretty much put it behind me you know it didn't affect me afterwards not because i'm big and clever it just didn't for whatever reason i think because in my own mind i was so happy with the decision i'd made i don't know if happy is the right word but so you know sort of content that the decision i'd made was the right one um and something that i would do again if i had to you know um so yeah i just moved on so a little while later the team uh there was some information came in Um uh, we're back now on sort of you know armed response jobs and there was some information, in fact, there was a series of armed robberies that had taken place at um, some off-licences, you know, selling alcohol and, you know, news agents selling cigarettes and papers and bits and pieces. Um, guy had come in with what looked like a, a sawn-off shotgun, although it was described several times as kind of bigger than a sawn-off shotgun, and it wasn't really clear what they meant from that. But certainly some sort of a gun, Mr Robber comes in, points the weapon at the staff member at the till, uh, makes them open a the till and then basically takes the cash, uh, you know, out of the till and, and runs off. So by the time it came to us, it took a, a few days to kind of go through the various channels and get round to us while they were doing some initial inquiries. Um, but the time it came to the sort of armed team to have a look at it, he'd been really active really quickly. I mean, quite often, you know, you can have a robbery and it happens like once every six months, you know, once every three months, something like that. But this guy had done... I think it was something like four already in a a very short space of time, about two weeks. Um, And he'd never got away with much. He was just unlucky. They just sort of cashed up or put it in the safe. He wasn't taking staff members into the back room, you know, making them open safes and all that. He was literally taking what was in the till. So each time he was literally getting away with, you know, a couple of hundred pounds or something. So it really wasn't a lot, particularly when you you know realize the sentence you're going to get for that you know it's it's almost as serious as it gets you know an armed robbery with a firearm is a, is a big deal so um eventually a plan was put together um and you know we looked at the town as a whole and there was maybe i don't know a dozen targets something like that and when i say targets i mean possible places he might rob in that town he'd been sticking to this one town now he'd already done sort of four of them and we realised that so with the resources we had, even splitting the team across, say, two different venues at once, we could basically just hedge our bets and pick two premises to cover, which would leave about another four that were not, you know, not co- didn't have arm cover, and we would just have to react, and we would just have to hope that we got lucky. You know, now we had sort of um, uniform patrols out around, and, and we're waiting, you know, for something to happen, basically course, sure enough, on the first night when we were set up, um, he did another armed robbery. And, of course, it wasn't at either of the two locations we were covering. Um, so there was a, a very quick, you know, sort of makeover uh, to the place that had been robbed. Again, no sort of weapon discharge, just point the weapon, steal what was in the till and off. Uh, no trace of him. You know, he was completely hooded and masked up, so there was no sort of description or anything. Um, and all we had really from from that night where he'd done the robbery that uh You know we hadn't caught him unfortunately, even though we were there very quickly. It was an absolute maze around the shop, lots of alleyways and and places he could have gone, so really difficult to um to sort of get hold of him. but one of the sergeants off the team had seen a guy relatively nearby um shortly after i say shortly after a little while after the robbery, maybe fifteen minutes or something by that time you'd expect someone to be well away from the area unless of course he lived close um Anyway, he stopped check this guy and the guy was, you know, seemingly innocent, uh, had nothing on him. He got searched that, you know, there's nothing on him, there's no weapon, no cash, nothing at all to link him to the robbery. But what he did do was just obtain his details, you know, made note of his name, filled out a quick sort of search form to say he been searched and, and that was that. Um, thought nothing more of it. So sure enough, the following night we were back again um, and uh, sat up, the team was sat up again waiting for... Um, you know him to strike obviously we picked a different two targets this night um, slightly closer to the first one because now we were really thinking perhaps he hasn't got transport perhaps he hasn't got a vehicle so he is literally doing the you know the targets that are closest to him so he can get to him on foot so we were sat up again in the cars waiting for something to happen and um, sure enough uh, another robbery came in Although, once again, not at either of the two premises we were covering, but it was closer to one of the teams. So uh, this same sergeant and some others kind of went rushing to that scene. And lo and behold, very near now to this place um, was this guy that he'd stopped before. So he stopped him again, realised it was the same guy. And on a little bit of a whim, but, you know, good policing ultimately, Um, he arrested the guy because, you know, he said, you know, that's two robberies in two days and you've been near on both of them. He did fit the description in terms of size um, and build. And don't forget that uh, in the UK we arrest on suspicion of the offence. So we're not saying they've done it, but there's certainly evidence to suggest they might have. And therefore we will arrest them. And then ultimately we can go away and try and see if there is a case to answer by interviews and speaking to witnesses and CCTV, etc. So um, they took him into custody and they went back and developed it a bit, did some follow-up inquiries and um, ended up going round to his house actually speaking to his family. Um, From what I remember, he was quite young. um, And when they spoke to the family, uh, they didn't know what it was about initially and and seemed like a decent family, decent background he came from. But they had said that he'd been, um, he'd found... Uh, a weapon in his granddad's loft. Now, his granddad, I think, was in the Navy during the Second World War. And at some point during that, he got hold of a very, very rare and specialist. Um, it was a U-boat flare gun, I think. And it was described to the officers that went round as a very large sort of double-barrelled uh, sawn-off shotgun, you know, where the barrels were, you know, much bigger than a normal shotgun because it fired flares, basically. Uh, they said, Oh, yeah, he found this, you know, in, in Grandad's loft. Um, and we'd seen him kind of looking at it and playing around with it. So, of course, they, they were invited to go up to his bedroom to have a look, which uh, the cops did. And uh, of course, they found the weapon. Um, and it was very, very distinctive. You know, they took photos of it, it was shown to the various um places that had been robbed, and they confirmed that was definitely it. And then there was a load more follow up work done. Um, and uh. You know, it was a hundred percent him. There, there was absolutely no doubt. And of course, the uh, the slightly ironic ending is that he got a very lengthy prison sentence for. I think in the end, it was like six armed robberies, but his total amount of money he got away with was. It wasn't much at all. It was literally a couple of hundred pound each time. So I think he ended up walking away with about three or four grand. Now, ultimately, this. Uh, this weapon that he'd used was sold off by the family. Grandad was long since died. So it was sold off at auction by the family. And it was so rare, it made £6,000 at auction, um, considerably more than he'd got. So yeah, a little bit of uh, irony there that uh, the weapon, had he just sold the weapon and not done any robberies, he'd have been, you know, two grand up. But instead he had, yeah, a fairly lengthy prison sentence. So that was quite an interesting one and then um, another one that came in and it was a classic we've talked about masks before which is mobile arm support to surveillance so a surveillance team gets put on someone and in this scenario that's exactly what happened um there was basically information that this guy was going to rob a bank um bit old school bit classic i know you know but it used to happen and um he supposedly had a, a contact that had a firearm um he'd got hold of this firearm or was going to get hold of the firearm. And then he was intending to rob a bank. Of course, like usual, we didn't know which bank. You know, which friend he was getting the weapon off. What time? You know, what day? You know, we didn't have an awful lot. Apart from the fact, you know, the information was he was going to rob a bank. So um, we put a full surveillance team on him, and they did a lot of what we call lifestyle uh, surveillance. So we're trying to establish, you know, what are his movements? Who are his friends? Where does he live? What pub does he drink in? What gym does he work out in? You know, what betting shop does he go to? Whatever it is, we basically, over a period of a week, we need to know and want to know everything about that person. Because then if there's something out of the ordinary, something a little bit different, that can give us the heads up. Now, of course, the problem with doing that surveillance with the information you have is that there's a very real risk. He may already have the weapon and that he suddenly decides, that's it, I'm off to do the robbery. You know, he's not going to broadcast it to anyone or it's unlikely so what you have to have as well as the surveillance team who weren't armed you have to have a couple of armed cars at the back of the convoy and able to move up the convoy and you know and deal with an armed threat should he it suddenly look like he's going to head for a bank um but very very difficult to achieve the timing you know in terms of you need to keep the team and the armed team the surveillance close close enough to deal with stuff but not so close that you spook him so um in the end Uh, They narrowed the information down and they actually caught him over the series of a week going to recce, a particular bank. Well, that's certainly what it appeared to the team. He went to the same town for a few days in a row and every day he went to this specific bank and kind of looked through the windows and looked outside. I think he even went in one or two times, which got the team really nervous, Um, but they were pretty confident he didn't have the weapon on him. You know, he had no bag with him. I think it was the summer, so he had like, you know, shorts and a T-shirt on, so there wasn't many places to hide a weapon. Now, they had the team in very close should something happen, um, but we'd have definitely been, you know, on the back foot at that point. So he was followed about, and, um, yeah, they were pretty confident that they, you know, we had the target, we knew what the target was. Of course, we still didn't know the day. Um, but, you know, again, we we had to hedge our bets, we had to put people into the bank, and what happened was... Um, On the morning uh, that he was being looked at again under surveillance, he was acting very differently. He had different clothes on. Bear in mind, it was hot. He had, like, you know, a big jacket on. I think he had, like, you know, a classic sort of rolled up woolly hat, which was probably a balaclava, although we didn't know that. Um, Big, bulky clothing. And then I think he went to a garage or a lockup and he picked up a small bag, you know, which the surveillance team were pretty sure, in terms of the way he carried it and the way the bag was folded around it, was a handgun of some description. So the feeling very much was that, you know, today was the day. So um, the team followed down. Now, we had people in the bank. We had uh, people uh, acting as tellers, or I think they were, like you know, trainee tellers behind the bank counter who were armed. And the only person that was in on this was the bank manager. The rest of the staff didn't know. We had, now sometimes you have to come up with things, you know, a little bit unusual to make it work. We've talked about the sort of the moody courier who knocks on the door and asks for Mr... Joe blogs, and when he opens the door, that's the team springing out and running in. You know they had to think a little bit laterally on this one as well because we needed people in the bank, but you can't have loads of big burly cops stood around waiting because you know you're going to scare him off. So what they actually did was put one of the team in a wheelchair and put them into the bank, and they had the classic you know kind of tartan blanket across their lap, but underneath that blanket they had an MP five. Uh, folding stock so it was quite small tucked away and they also had you know a carer or a helper with them who was also armed and they went and sat across you know in the corner of the the bank like they were waiting on the chairs to see you know the manager about a loan application or something like that so you had two armed on the sort of uh, you know in the public area if you like you also had a teller that was one of ours that was also armed and they waited so the team was sat up we had you know um Various people dotted around all over the place, ready to deal with this guy. And you're listening to the surveillance, you're listening to the commentary of this person coming closer. And also, the silver commander, who's the one that will call it in the end, um, or potentially the team leader, they're the ones that have the, the decision to make when to call it, when to call the strike, you know. And we would call it a, a strike, you know, there's various things on the radio um, you would always get the command standby standby twice first and then you would get three strikes, strike, strike, strike. And to be clear, we went on the first stri- of strike because there's the comedy moment, of course, where somebody goes on the first strike, somebody goes on the second strike and the last couple of members of the team you know, react to the third one. It goes out three times because if the radio's cut out the last second, chances are you're going to hear the word strike, which is enough. But in an ideal world, as soon as those first sort of three letters come out of the first strike and you've had your standby, so you are ready, um, that's when you go. That's when the team goes. So that's, you know, there's no doubt about it. That is quite an exciting time when you're waiting for this and you're hearing the build up. So the team was listening to the commentary and they could hear the guy and the surveillance team was saying, him that's him toward, toward the bank. You know, he's into the town, he's parked his car, he's on the outskirts of the town and they knew it was only a couple of minutes Um, to walk in. Now, the other big decision to make about when you call that strike is if you call it too early, if they've not gone into the bank, then probably the best you can hope for is you're going to get a charge of, you know, possession of a firearm maybe, um, which is a much lower offence than the arm robbery he was about to carry out. However, if you let him get in the bank and actually carry out the robbery, Yes, you've got the offence, you know, complete and it's a good offence and he's going to get, you know, a really decent sentence for that. But you're putting members of the public at risk. Uh, You know, what if he shoots one of them? You know, and can you imagine if that came out in court that, oh, we had a full armed team set outside and, 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 you know, of course the solicitors would have a field day. They'd be like, the armed police stood around and did absolutely nothing. You know, it's all about this timing. The other thing is that if you let him get in and now he's holding the bank up, for one of a better phrase. You know, he's got the gun in his hand and he's pointing it at members of the public or the teller or whatever. If the team then bursts in, um, you could very easily make him, you know, sort of take shots. Or you could have a hostage situation, you know, where now he, you know, sort of grabs someone by the throat and puts a gun to the head. You know, all these things we don't want. So a really, really difficult position for a team leader or a silver commander to make that call on you know when to call the strike. So back to our story. Our man's close now and he's parked his car up and we listen to surveillance and the surveillance says he's on foot, he's toward toward the target. He's on the high street, his eyes all about, he appears nervous, you know, and don't forget he's sort of dressed in the right clothing and it's like he's he's close to the bank standby stand by so everyone's on tender hooks and literally about to sort of pull the van door open or whatever and go piling out uh and he just walks straight past the bank door and he doesn't go to it he, he doesn't even glance in there he just walks straight past so everyone's you know catching their breath you know and and stops for a second and he carries on past so thinking that's weird i want wonder what's going on then because it looked like he was ready Anyway, as he walked off, a member of the surveillance team coming the other way said they could see him uh, and hear him when they walked past, literally shoulder to shoulder with him, sort of geeing himself up, kind of trying to convince himself, you know, you come on, you can do this, you can do this next time, next time we're going to do it. So, of course, he fed this back to the team, and they realised that chances are he lost his bottle, you know, he went up, he was about to do it, and then he lost his nerve at the last second. So... He carries on up, you know, 100 yards past the bank and he stops for a second. He aimlessly looks in a shop window, which he's clearly got no interest in at all. And then what happens? He turns around, he walks back and he's back towards the bank now. So surveillance are back on him. We're getting the commentary. He's walking towards the bank. He's very close. He's 15 metres off the bank. His hand's up towards the handle, standby, standby. And everyone's got their hand on the car door handle, ready to rip it open and jump out and leap on him. And he walked straight past. And he carried on past the bank again. And this same thing happened. Um, So the team were pretty convinced he was going to do it for sure, but just didn't quite get the nerve anyway. What happens? Same thing again. He turns around. Anyway, this continued on and he did it. I'm not kidding. It was like four or five times until eventually he finally got to do it. And he turned around for this last time. And I say this was like the fifth or sixth time. He walks up to the bank. It's standby, standby, his hands up, his hands on the handle of the door. And he pushes the door and there's a clunk on the door and the door doesn't open. And he kind of looks quizzically and he's looking round and he pushes the door again and it doesn't open. It's locked. So he looks up and he's basically... I think the bank closed at like half past five in the evening. He's gone there at kind of, you know, quarter past five or whatever, thinking he's going to do his robbery. And he's missed so many opportunities. But by the time he actually puts his hand on the bank door and is intending to push it and go in and do his robbery, um, they've closed and they've locked the door. So he can't go in. So an absolute nightmare, or not maybe, is that the team were, you know, virtually having heart attacks at this point. You know, every time he got that close, thinking he's he's going to do it now and uh, yeah he didn't get the opportunity so they had to make the decision in the end that they couldn't let him carry on um so the decision was made and he was arrested just around the corner and what they got was you know the handgun which it was on him he was arrested for possession of a handgun Um, but ultimately he did get done um for an attempted armed robbery because they had a lot of um evidence uh saying of what he was doing they had footage of him back and forward um, and the defence, or sorry, the prosecution very much made the case that the only reason he didn't get to do that robbery was because the door was locked. Everything else said he intended to do it, but he did get convicted of it. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, quite an interesting one, and he did end up uh, getting done for it. But, yeah, quite exciting times. Um so that was those two robberies I will just talk briefly about one other job that happened which was actually nothing to do with armed work I think I've said before that um ARVs you know generally try to avoid at that point going to you know sort of fights and violent things because of the fact you're carrying a firearm and you don't really want to get in a in a fight or a roll around with someone but you know if the if the division was sure if they had no one to go to a call then absolutely you'd help out and on this occasion I was with my colleague and we were driving around in uniform in a, in a marked arm response vehicle and we found ourselves in a a beauty spot on the south coast that is very well known unfortunately it's very well known for suicides as well because it's got some really really high white cliffs and people travel bizarrely from literally all over the country to commit suicide by jumping off these cliffs so a, a sort of suicidal mail call at this location was not uncommon at all and um that's exactly what came in. Basically, the guy rang himself and said, I'm at this location and I'm, I'm going to kill myself, you know, and I want officers to come. And that was kind of the, the gist of the call. So of course, typically there was no one available, but we weren't far off. So I said to my pal, well, we'll go to that, you know, we'll at least hold the fort and see if we can do anything. Um, so we drive to this location and we both said to ourselves, as I'd heard many times in the police, that it's a cry for help, you know, he's called us, he isn't going to do it, because why would he ring us to tell us, Um, so we headed off to the location, and when we turned up, he'd given us a description of himself, he said, I'm, you know, 40 years old, I've got black beard, you know, I'm in black jacket, black trousers, you're basically all in black, with a a big sort of black bushy beard, so it's quite distinctive, and uh, we turn up at this location, and we park in the car park, and we look up the hill, there's like a steep hill to the top of where these cliffs were, and sure enough, about 50 meters ahead of us was this guy who fitted the description to a T. So we got out of the car and we started walking up the hill and the guy stopped and waited till we started to move off and then he beckoned us forward with his hand like he was waving us up the hill and as soon as we started moving he turned and slowly walked away up the hill himself. So of course we followed Um, and he was basically matching our speed so we weren't making any ground on him but he wasn't getting away from us either if you like so he carried on a little bit further up the hill and this carried on three or four times and every now and then he would stop um, and we would kind of stop and try and speak to him or try and shout to him because he's still a fair distance away but he just didn't say anything to us but every now and then he would beckon us forward with his arm wave us forward and as soon as we started moving again he would turn and carry on up the hill and sure enough we would follow so like I said this carried on about three or four times and uh, we were almost at the top or well, he was certainly near, nearly at the top, we were a bit further down, when I heard a, a car sort of drawing up to the car park on the crunchy gravel down behind us where well, we just parked our car, and I turned and looked, and it was the first uh, sort of divisional car, you know, the sort of uniformed cops that had turned up to assist us. So I looked back up the hill and I said to my pal that I was with at the time, oh, that's the first, um, you know, uniform car here. And my colleague said to me, he's gone. And I said, what, what do you mean, gone? Gone where? You know? And he, he was just looking sort of incredulous. And he said, He he's gone, you know. And I I still couldn't get my head around. I was like, sorry, gone where? You know? And he said, He's just jumped. He's just jumped off. And uh, well, neither of us could believe it. So he's kind of rushed up the hill. And now this place um does have a, you know lots of different cliffs. And on some of these cliffs, I know for a fact that there are kind of ledges that aren't that far down, you know, but there are some that are literally, you know, flat wall of cliffs that just go straight down. So if you jump off, there's no coming back. And I was convinced that this was one of those that he just sort of, you know, walked out of our view and he was going to be on a ledge, you know, kind of 10 feet down asking for help. So we ran up to the top of the pair of us and um, he, he was literally gone, you know, and we looked down now it's 600 foot down at this point. So we couldn't, you know, we could see the beach, but we couldn't really make anything out. And, of course, it was a full, you know, Coast Guard call out. They brought the helicopter. They put people over on ropes. And I was speaking to the Coast Guard and I said, there must be, a, there's a ledge here and there, surely. We, neither of us could still believe it. Um, and they went, no, absolutely not. It's a flat cliff. It just goes straight down 600 feet. And we, yeah, we were just, uh, well, we were, the pair of us were shocked, basically. Um, and sure enough, they recovered him off the beach, you know. And there's no nice way of putting it, you know, smashed to pieces and, and very much dead. Um, he, he had done it you know so many times after that I went to suicidal calls and people go oh they've called us you know they're never going to do it it's a cry for help as I had prior to that job but uh, you know I never never thought that anymore after that one and it turned out we think the reason he'd done it was he had an elderly mother who I think was ill I think she had dementia and he knew she was going to die and probably in a very long drawn out way and he just didn't want to face that. But equally, he didn't want to go off and commit suicide without telling anyone because he was worried that, um, you know, no one would ever find him. And then he'd be a missing person for, for weeks or months before anyone found him and and his mum would kind of never know what had happened. And I think, thankfully, at this point, his mum had already gone so far down the kind of dementia route that she didn't actually know, uh, you know, too much what was going on. So that was very much a blessing. And when they went round, uh, she was in a care home and the staff said, look, you know, she just isn't going to know what you're talking about. So so that was something. But that's the only reason we think that he basically stopped and waited and and made us watch effectively, you know, him jump off to his death. So it was it was a sad one. And uh, yeah, a bit of a shock for sure. But unfortunately, that's policing for you. You never know what you're going to get. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Uh, There's uh, three different incidents there and a little bit of uh, waffle as usual. Hopefully, it was interesting. And uh, keep you coming back for some more. We'll be on to something else next week. Okay, take it easy. Speak soon. Bye.